from the newsroom of the Washington Post. ¿Cómo está? Te habla Elisa Hernández del Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with the Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, August 25th. Today, Melania Trump and the art of her deal, using DNA to map the spread of COVID, and the life of a teen protester in Belarus. Tonight at the Republican National Convention, we'll hear from one of the most mysterious figures inside the White House, someone that we rarely get to hear from at all. Good morning, everyone. Thank you all for joining me today. An address that voters are waiting for with bated breath. Melania Trump, First Lady of the United States of America. Her address will come on... Over the last four years, this sort of narrative has taken hold that Melania Trump is something of an unwilling participant, a prisoner or hostage in the Trump White House. It's even created this meme, Free Melania. Hashtag save Melania, flip her this number. If you ever see her, let her know we will come wherever she is, and we will get her. I mean, imagine this. She's in the White House. She looks out the window, and she sees the posters. Hashtag free Melania. You know, blink (laughs) if you need us to rescue you. And uh, it wasn't true at all. Mary Jordan is a national political reporter for The Post. Earlier this year, she published a book about Melania Trump. It's called The Art of Her Deal, and it brings the First Lady into much sharper focus. When I was covering the campaign for The Washington Post in 2016, you know, I would ask basic questions like, when did she meet Donald? You know, tell me more about her modeling career. Tell me what she was doing before she arrived in the United States at 26. And they just wouldn't answer. It was just so, such an odd vacuum of information. And so since then, I've just was determined to talk to people who knew her firsthand at different parts of her life, to get documents, to get videos, some of the things I found in attics in Slovenia, to find out more about who she is. And she's definitely not trapped. Hmm. When you say that she's a player, what do you mean by that? She's consequential and influential in the White House. I talked to a lot of people in the administration, some of them, many of them who had left since. And they said that the most dangerous place to be in the White House is in the crosshairs of Melania Trump. Hmm. That if she wants you fired, you're going to be fired. And if she wants you hired, you have a job. He consults her particularly on top level personnel matters, including the cabinet and including Mike Pence. Really? Tell me more about that. Like, what did you find out about the specific scenarios of her role in hiring? Well, so again, when Trump was trying to figure out who his number two should be, Chris Christie from New Jersey, Newt Gingrich, who had been the House Speaker, and Mike Pence emerged as the final three. And he wanted Melania to talk to all three. And he actually asked her to spend two days at Bedminster with both Mike and Karen Pence. They had lunches, dinner, because he valued what she said. And it was fascinating because I heard this from three different people who directly knew. She said to him, Pence is the guy because the other two will be gunning for your job and Pence is not as ambitious and will be content with number two. And I think, you know, that was music to Trump's ears because 
he famously doesn't do co-stars. You know, he wanted to be the number one. And so he really listened to her in that moment. Yes. Many people, you know, I named them in the book from former campaign managers to top advisors, as well as other people said, Donald Trump doesn't trust many people. Increasingly, the longer he's in the White House, he trusts fewer people. And the one person that he continues to trust and rely on is Melania. That is interesting. So you went back and reported on all these stages from Melania Trump's life that we don't really hear that much about. And and I want to hear more about that reporting process and maybe starting with her childhood. You actually went to Slovenia, right, to, oh, yes. to talk to people who knew her as a kid. Yes. She grew up in a socialist country. It was Yugoslavia then. And when she left at age 21, you know, it wasn't like she was a toddler when she left. So I talked to classmates about that time. And it was such a different country then because, you know, everybody had in a certain level of a job. They were paid exactly the same. She lived in a a high rise apartment. Was she like pretty middle class or? She grew up like everybody else. You know, nobody really was in need of anything, but there were limited things you could buy. It was a pretty modest upbringing. But her mother was a seamstress and hand-sewed beautiful, distinctive things. And everyone I talked to in her hometown said, oh, you always knew Melania and her sister because they were dressed better than anybody else. Hmm. So then how did the role of Melania's mother and, and Melania's general upbringing, how did it affect her personality and her approach to life? I think the mother is key. And it's fascinating to me that her mother is in the White House with her. We never see her. She doesn't speak much English, but she's there. And as a friend said, her mother is her right hand and her left hand. Her mother has helped her raise Baron. Baron speaks Slovenian because he's very close to his grandmother. Really? I didn't know that. It's a great scene because the mother, the father, Baron and Melania speak Slovenian every day in the White House residence because the parents don't speak that much English and Baron can speak Slovenian. And Trump has been heard and I was told by people in the White House kind of muttering to himself that it drives him crazy that he has no idea what they're saying. (laughs) I can imagine. And so... Even from Melania's childhood, what did she kind of see as her trajectory in life or or what was her goal? She got admitted to the University of Ljubljana for an architecture program. Three out of four people were rejected. It was an extremely hard program to get into. But at the time, her professor said, I think she realized that even if she became an architect, she wasn't ever going to make much money. Mm. And she real, people were telling her that she could do more with her beauty. And, you know, she was tall and thin. And this was the era, the supermodel. You know, this was the time when, when models were personalities. People knew who mm-hmm. Naomi Campbell was and people knew who Elle McPherson and Cindy Crawford. And Melania decided that she was hearing that you could make $10,000 just walking down the catwalk for 15 minutes. Hmm. And she wanted in and she tried. So how exactly did Melania get to the U.S. and what was life like for her when she first moved here? So she's already 26 years old, which is sadly old for a model. But she 
this Italian man named Paolo Zampoli who was starting a, a modeling firm in New York City, and he wanted her to come. And he said that he got her first work visa to come to New York at the age of 26. And he set her up with a roommate, a photographer that he knew down near Union Square in Manhattan. And Melania, you know, lived like pretty much every other foreign woman who was coming to work in modeling. She shared a one-bedroom, shared a bathroom, you know, went to Crate and Barrel, fixed her apartment, and went to auditions. She got some. She didn't, she, she didn't get most of them. And she kept working until two years later, Zampoli said he introduced her to um, Donald Trump. At that point, was she like a, a big partier? I assume that's a kind of a big part about the life of a supermodel in New York at that point. One of the defining things about Melania, and I heard this in Slovenia, I heard it in Italy, I heard it when I went to Paris, when I was talking to people that worked with her, was how she never went out. She didn't go out. She hmm. was disciplined. She didn't drink. She didn't do drugs. And the modeling scene is full of drugs and drinking. By all accounts, you know, one of the things that bonded Melania and Trump were he also doesn't drink. His brother was an alcoholic and he has steered clear of it. And that was something that, that they both had in common. Well, how, how do they say that they met? So the story goes that during Fashion Week in New York, Melania was invited to a party and was sitting beside a well-known supermodel. Donald came in didn't have care about that supermodel, just had eyes for Melania, and it was lightning struck, and that was it. I could find nobody to verify that story. I do think, because they started showing up in the tabloids in New York around September of 1998, he had, was not officially divorced yet, He was, but he was separated from Marla Maples. And he was a character in New York. He was always in the tabloids. He was always doing something interesting. He was 24 years older than Melania, and Melania was older than most models, but he was always around the modeling crowd. Hmm. The nickname for these guys, the older rich guys who hung out with models, were the modelizers, and that's where she met him. What were some of the things that surprised you uh, hearing about what her life is like in the White House? You know, I think because she is not in the West Wing, where the Oval Office is and you know, there's lots of bustle and lots of people. And in the past, first ladies wander over. Hey, you know, can we talk to my husband for a minute? Hey, can I join this meeting? Hey, can I join you for lunch? No, she she stays not just in the East Wing where the first lady's office is. She stays in the private residence. She doesn't come out of there for days at a time sometimes. And her mom is usually there with her, her father and Baron. She has separate quarters in the White House from Trump. Trump, you know, gets up much earlier. He starts tweeting. She gets up later. She eats healthy food separately. <laughs> you know, he's having his French fries and Diet Coke. And I mean, I think because the obvious ways they're so different, we often miss the ways they're alike. And the way they're alike is that they trust almost no one. Neither They're both loners. Neither of them have very many friends. And certainly if you're not immediate relationship, you're suspect and you're hmm. hyper conscious of image. You watch and read everything that's written about you. And when you're building your image or your brand, facts and reality don't necessarily collide. One of the moments that you reported on was what happened behind the scenes after the release of the Access Hollywood tape and how Melania responded to that. 
Well, let's go back there. It was just a month before the November election. It's a tight race with Hillary Clinton. And uh, David Fahrenthold from the Washington Post gets a hold of this amazing tape, right? And we all hear Donald Trump saying disgusting, lewd things about how he can grab women whenever he wants. It was done with Billy Bush on the set of NBC Studios. And Donald Trump is surrounded with Steve Bannon and Hope Hicks and other people from the campaign. And they, they're they hunched over, looking at a laptop, watching this video and listening to it. And, you know, Bannon was immediately, and Jared Kushner were like, oh, well, we can spin this. And they were already trying to figure out how are they going to explain that away. But it became very clear that his biggest problem wasn't even voters. It was Melania upstairs. And it took him two hours they said, to get the courage to go up and face her Hmm. because he knew how mad she would be. And basically that was the moment she had the most power because if she didn't back him up, you know, I think everyone in the campaign thought the campaign was over. Why would female voters, if she walked, why would they vote for him? Hmm. They really needed her to come out strong. And she took her time. She, they had wanted her to sit beside him and do a 60 minutes interview or any kind of interview where the two of them are beside each other. And she said, no, she took her time. And then days later, she did a solo interview with CNN and Anderson Cooper. And she dismissed it as boys talk and uh, kind of delivered for him. That was a key moment. And by the way, she was renegotiating her prenup then and he needed her and she had leverage. Hmm. And, and, you know, I think her response to that moment gets at something that is important in how you understand her and her role and how she has spent the last four years. You know, this narrative that she's this sort of unwilling participant in the White House or she's she's just waiting for it to be over, it glosses over the fact that oftentimes she has been complicit in the White House or has taken steps to do what I think she sees as what is most beneficial for her husband and also for her. She does not want to lose. You know, she's a fighter. She's a survivor. And, you know, her name is Trump. She wants to win. When that Excess Hollywood tape came out, she said to him, now you've blown it for us. Because they had been working and talking about that for 16 years. They have been talking about running for office. There have been headlines about Melania being the first lady. Many of them I found in sometimes in obscure magazines, but dating back to 1999. Trump always thought that there was nothing he couldn't do. And Melania bucked him up and told him exactly that. Let Trump be Trump. You have something special. And they had that bond right from the start right from the 1990s. Mary Jordan is a national political reporter for The Post. Her book about the First Lady is called The Art of Her Deal, and it's available online and in bookstores. We'll also link to an excerpt from the book, which you can find at postreports.com. On February 26th and 27th, about 175 folks from this biotech company called Biogen gathered in Boston for 
their annual leadership meeting. And this was February, right? So we weren't thinking about social distancing or keeping track of our contacts. And so they did all the things you normally do at a conference. They shook hands, they ate at the hotel buffet, they had cocktails. But what they didn't realize is that at least one of the people who attended the conference had the coronavirus. Over the course of those two days of the conference, it spread to many, many others. And those people wound up going home and spreading the virus in their communities to the Boston suburbs and Indiana, North Carolina, to Slovakia and Australia and Singapore. And ultimately, this single event, this super spreading event, wound up infecting hundreds of people. And it's actually thought to be responsible for one third of all cases sequenced in Massachusetts and 1% of all cases in the United States. I'm Sarah Kaplan, and I'm a science reporter at The Post. And how do we know this? Like, is this coming from the firsthand accounts of people who were there and later got sick or or their family members or from contact tracers who talked to these people? So we actually know this because of this really cool new form of disease detective work called genomic epidemiology. So a virus is basically just a packet of genetic information covered in protein. And when it invades your cell and gets into your body, it just makes copies of itself and then spreads them. And sometimes when it makes those copies, it makes a mistake. And that mistake or mutation can kind of serve as like a barcode to help you track the virus and its various descendants. And so scientists were able to identify the genetic barcode, the distinctive mutation that characterized the infections that happened at the Biogen conference, and then see how they spread all over the world. And they did that by collecting the samples of the virus from people who tested positive and sequencing the genomes of those viral particles. And We know all of this because of a study that came out recently from 54 researchers from a bunch of institutions in Massachusetts, the Broad Institute, Massachusetts General Hospital, and others that looked at hundreds of genome, virus genomes from across Massachusetts and elsewhere, and really mapped out the family tree of the virus in Massachusetts and how it's connected to other outbreaks around the world. This sounds super cutting edge, like very CSI pandemic version. Yeah, no, it totally is. And the thing is that this is the first time that scientists have had the opportunity to not just like watch an outbreak happen, but also track its evolution at the genetic level in real time. And then it seems like a really important opportunity if you're able to kind of figure out exactly how the virus spread, not just being able to see, you know, who tested positive and who didn't, but being able to look on a more, I guess, molecular level to see how it traveled from person to person. Yeah. So, you know, one scientist explained it to me as kind of like um, having only test results, only case numbers is kind of like seeing the outbreak in black and white, right? You have yes and no, positive or negative, and that's it. And then once you introduce the genome into the equation and you start doing this genomic epidemiology, it's like all of a sudden you can see the outbreak in color. You see all these connections between cases that you probably might not be able to find, even with traditional contact tracing. 
you know, there's a lot of times where people might not remember where they've been. People lie about where they've been or, you know, the connections between cases are not apparently obvious. But if you look at the genome, you can see, oh, these two people who seem really different from each other actually have they're linked in some way. And that actually happened with the Biogen outbreak. The characteristic strains that emerged out of that Biogen conference were later found in homeless shelters in Boston. And it seems like such a long leap from the kind of like wealthy biotech executives that were hobnobbing at this conference and some of Boston's most vulnerable residents. But the, the genome really shows actually those two communities are pretty closely related and it was probably only a few infections away from each other. And I think it's interesting to get more details or a sharper sense of how exactly COVID was spreading in those early days of the pandemic. But is information like that helpful going forward in terms of actually stopping it from spreading further? This study that was performed by 54 scientists from institutions all over Boston and Massachusetts. It's more of a retrospective. It helps you understand what happened in those early days. But the scientists who worked on it say that it could be a really powerful tool going forward. You think about all these debates we're having about whether or not to reopen schools, for example. And if a school had just reopened and they had maybe a handful of cases and they were trying to decide you know, is this a reason to close? Are these cases evidence of transmission within our community? There would be no way of knowing that with just knowing whether or not people tested positive. But if you had the genome, you could then look at the viruses that had infected each of their students and see if those viruses are genetically related or not. And if they're not related, that means that the students likely became infected outside the school building. And so then you would know, okay, our infection control protocols are working. And so we just have to make sure that that students who become sick don't come to school. Having the genome really allows you to have a much more targeted intervention because you understand a lot more about transmission. And it could be useful not just for schools, but for, you know, factories and essential businesses that maybe have a couple of cases and are trying to make sure that the cases are not because of transmission inside the building. So if this method is potentially so useful, not just in figuring out what happened in the past, but being able to take better preventive measures and and smarter, more targeted measures in the future, then is this going to be like a widespread part of testing? Like, are all of us who test positive going to have our genomes looked at and compared with, with other people in the community? From the perspective of the scientists who do this work, that's the ideal scenario. But the U.S. is actually pretty far behind on doing this kind of research. Even though the United States has a lot of top geneticists and you know, really capable sequencing centers, there hasn't been a lot of funding for this. And actually the researchers in Boston that we spoke to have had to stop sequencing because they ran out of funds. There are other countries though where this is really been incorporated into their entire strategy for controlling the outbreak. In the UK, a huge fraction of cases have been sequenced and the government has actually put millions of dollars towards an initiative to try to get an overall genetic portrait of the outbreak in the country. In New Zealand, which granted doesn't have that many cases, they've actually sequenced more than half of all of the cases that have been found in the country. So they must have an incredibly clear picture of exactly who spread COVID to who and how it worked its way through the country, though 
as you said, it actually hasn't really worked its, its way through the country that significantly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the thing to remember is that the way this procedure works is you're not taking the genome of the person, of the patient. You're actually looking at the genome of the virus. And the virus has RNA and that very same RNA that gets pulled out and examined to give a diagnosis, you could then pass along to geneticists and have them sequence it and learn all these other things from it. But right now in the US at least, nothing is really being done with that RNA after the original diagnosis is given. That feels like such a waste. Like, is there any effort to try to get more funding to make this practice more widespread and and to be able to get a better picture in places, not just in this one study from Boston? I mean, there are, despite the lack of funding, this is happening in a lot of places around the country. Um, Washington state has done quite a bit of sequencing. So has Minnesota and California, but it's really patchy. It's not this, you know, federally coordinated effort, but There are signs that the U.S. is beginning to ramp up on this. Um, The CDC has an initiative to coordinate academics and public health officials and even people from the biotech industry to try to really ramp up this project and get a lot more sequencing done. And... It depends on on where the federal government decides to allocate money and resources. Um, one thing that came up a lot in my conversations with genetic epidemiologists is that the information is only useful if it's fast and if it's really coordinated and comprehensive. You know, one problem we have right now in the U.S. in general with the pandemic is that the response has been so patchy and that makes it a lot harder to control the outbreak or even just to get understanding of like what exactly is going on. And the same is true of genomic epidemiology. If you have a ton of samples from New York and none from Alabama, you don't have a complete picture of kind of what the virus is up to and how infections are being exchanged. And it makes it really hard to start to do these sophisticated analyses that tell you how the virus has spread. And so what scientists say is really needed is a well-funded and well-coordinated national effort. Sarah Kaplan writes about science for The Post. And now, one more thing. Belarus had its presidential election on August 9th. And since then, protests have been going on every single day. My name is Isabel Kershudian, and I'm a foreign correspondent for The Washington Post based in Moscow. Alexander Lukashenko has been president in Belarus since 1994, and he was going for a sixth term in office. But the opposition movement, led by three women, primarily Svetlana Tikhonovskaya. Today, my country, Belarus, is in turmoil and crisis. There was a sense that this would be his greatest challenge to power in 26 years. By the opinion of the majority of observers, the electoral process was deeply flawed. When on election night, it was announced that Lukashenko won re-election with 80% of the votes, Belarusians didn't believe the results, and neither did many Western governments. (laughs) 
So protests have been going on to A, have a new election, and B, to force Lukashenko to step down. These are considered the most significant protests in Belarus's history, especially since, you know, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Weekend protests for the past two Sundays have exceeded 100,000 people, maybe even 200,000 by some estimates. Konstantin Karni is a 17-year-old Belarusian. He felt so strongly about this and was willing to go out on the streets even when, you know, there were a lot of reports of violence from security forces against protesters. Okay, my name is uh, Konstantin Karni. Uh, I'm 17 years old. I'm living in Minsk, Belarus. The main purpose why I'm going to the protest, everyone in Belarus understands that uh, we won't have any future if Alexander Lukashenko would stay our president. Every time you're going on the streets, uh, you have this little bit uh, scary feeling that Today you're gonna go to the jail. You won't be lucky enough and uh, the police bu- would caught you. First day of the protest on the 9th August, one of the policemen uh, were very close to me and uh, I was seeing his eyes. Uh, he said, I would, uh, if you run, I would kill you. And when you see these eyes, these animal eyes, you're realizing that he's not lying. It's a um, very strange feeling. <laughs> like you understand that you're doing the right thing, but uh, the person who must defend you from the criminals and etc., uh, he would just shoot you. This is really terrifying. Because uh, we just want our future back. We just want to have a chance to build our own economy, to have our human rights. That's why we're going on the protests. That's why we are shouting uh, about that Lukashenko go away. That's why we're keeping our protest peaceful. We want to show him that we're not animals. He's showing us that he could kill us, he could torture us, he could point a gun into the us, he could blast us. And we just want to show them that our main reason is the peace for this country. This is our country. Konstantin Karni is a senior in high school. He lives in Minsk, Belarus. Isabel Kershudian is a foreign correspondent based in Moscow. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Catch up on recent episodes of the podcast at postreports.com. You can also find links to read more about the stories that you hear on our episodes each day. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.